the last time we, I was teaching, that these seven letters uh, were written to individual churches <clears throat> at that time in the first century. But I also said that they were representative of all churches throughout history. So we can't just look at that and say, well, that's just for that church back 2,000 years ago. It's also for us. Just like when we read the, the letter to the Corinthians or the letter to the Romans, it's not just for the church at Corinth, it's for all. And so it's important that we read these letters and study and learn them. And I mentioned a little bit about the structure of the Revelation, um, chapter 2 and 3, um, addressing actual churches, and they stand in contrast to the last two chapters of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22. Because in the seven letters, we're going to see some imperfections in the church. Right? There are some imperfections. And you compare it to chapter 21 and 22, we see the perfection of the saints. So we see the contrast, the comparison, if you will. I gave some parallels. For example, I talked about chapter 2, verse 2, talking about false prophets as compared to the 12 true apostles in chapter 21, verse 14. So when you look at the churches in, at the beginning of Revelation, then you look at chapter 21 and 22 at the end, you see the contrast. Okay? You also see it with the promises. Uh, uh, each letter in chapter 2 and 3, and there's a promise to the overcomer. When you go to chapter 21 and 22, you find the ultimate fulfillment of each of those promises. The perfect fulfillment, if you will. Then I also emphasized the last time that um, Christ is at the center of the content of each of these letters. In other words, each of these letters, the churches, is to be Christocentric, where Christ is central. He is the head of the universal church, but he's also the head of the true local church. He's the heartbeat. He is the center, and he is everything in the church. Uh, he, in fact, the church is to revolve around him and his purposes, who he is. And so he is the Lord of lords, and thus he is sovereign over all, especially over his church. So if a congregation or if a, a local church body is not Christocentric, then they will begin to experience the discipline of their Lord, Jesus Christ. So what matters most to Jesus, and thus should matter most to us in the churches, does the church hold forth its name? Does it proclaim the gospel of which he's at the center, the true gospel? And uh, does the church heed his words as guidance to govern their life? That's what, he, that's what matters most to Jesus, not the numbers. You know, a lot of times you go to these churches and they're all about numbers. But that's what he's, he's not, uh, Jesus is not concerned about the numbers. He's in control of the numbers. So to him, numbers don't mean anything. Do we hold forth his name? Do we proclaim the true gospel, which he's the heart, he's the center? Do we take heed to his commands, his word? And so that's what we see in these churches. And then we talked a little bit last time also about the city Ephesus. It was a huge city. It was the most important political center at that time. Very well known. It became a center of commerce and trade for all of that area. Um, it was one of the most pro uh, prosperous provinces in the Roman Empire. It had a large population. In fact, some call it um, the New York City of the time because it is large, one of the largest cities. Uh, we talked about how they also had emperor worship. They would actually make idols to these emperors and worship, and it wasn't optional. You were commanded to. You were commanded to worship these emperors, and uh, many Christians suffered persecution because they refused to bow the knee to the emperors, and that's why there's such persecution of Christians back then. 
We also saw that in uh, Ephesus, the city, it was a cauldron of countless cults, all kinds of religions there. And the biggest one, of course, is the worship of uh, Artemis or Diana. They had a massive temple. She was the Greek goddess of fertility. And it housed many criminals and many prostitutes because if, if a criminal would flee to the temple, uh, the so-called police or the soldiers cannot go in to arrest them. And so it housed many criminals. Uh, there were religious prostitutes in which that's how they worshipped their gods was through, through their prostitution. And so it was just a cauldron of wickedness and evil in that city. And yet the church in Ephesus and other local congregations, think about it, they knew nothing of the religious freedom we have today. You know, we're protected by law. We have, at least up to now we did. I know eventually it's going to diminish, but we have the freedom of religion and we can freely worship. Back then they didn't have that. And it was not... It was not out of the ordinary for them to try to worship and then be pulled out and be taken and fed to the lions because they refused to bow the knee to the emperor or to do other forms of worship. And so they suffered tremendously. Yet in the midst of what we see of this idolatry and wickedness, the church thrived. The church continued to thrive because the church is in the hands of God and not in the hands of the state. And so there's some encouragement there. And that's what uh, we covered last time. So let's look at this passage uh, again. Let's read through Ephesians, or Ephesians, the church at Ephesus. Let's read through Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured, <coughs> excuse me, for my name's sake, and I'm not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. <clears throat> so we look now at, as we begin in verse 1 and, and start working through, I know we started this last time, so I just want to pick up from there. But what we see in the, right at the very beginning in verse 1 is that Jesus Christ is sovereign over the church. And I, I, I know that many just accept that and say, yeah, I believe that. But how much do we truly believe that? And that's why I want to emphasize it. Because Jesus makes it very clear here. He's the one writing these letters. And it, it's emphatic here that Jesus is sovereign over the church. And it's deeply profound, I believe, and significant that these are the very words of Jesus Christ. He's the one who wrote them. I, I realize that he inspired the, the entire Bible, and that's important that we understand that. But these seven letters, and especially this one here, it is a direct, explicit address of Jesus Christ, specifically to these churches. And he addresses them, as we will see, with statements, with assertions, with theological concepts that are critical, doctrinal truths, and more. As we work through this, we will see. And so it's vital 
that we take heed to his words. Now, what we see is he, he opens up with uh, describing his relationship to local churches. And he talks about the leadership when he says um, uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Uh, it's very difficult to understand who this angel is. I tend to lean towards being the, the leader, the pastor, not dogmatic on it. Other scholars believe it's different. Um, we don't know specifically, but we know it is someone who's connected to the church. And that's important. And so we see that um, he holds him in his hand, and notice his, his description, how he describes himself. He is seen holding fast the seven stars, right? Or the angels, if you will. And second, he is walking in the midst of the churches. So let's look at these two descriptions. He is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now this word here, to hold, in the Greek is a very strong word, krateo is the word. It refers to hold authoritatively. No one is going to be able to snatch them out of his hand. And that's what Jesus said in John chapter 10, right? And he said that we are in the Father's hands and no one is able to take us out of the Father's hands. And so Jesus holds the, the, the churches in his hands. So it makes the sovereign control of Jesus over the churches, over the so-called stars, if you will, even more graphic. In chapter 1, verse 20, you see that the seven stars are the messengers or the leaders, if you will. And then, of course, he holds them in his right hand. And back then in the Jewish mindset, the right hand is uh, the, the uh, hand of honor. The hand of honor. And so this tells us that Jesus holds the leaders, or the churches, if you will, with his power in a, in a place of honor. That's how Jesus sees the church. That's how he sees the true church. He holds them. No one can snatch them out of his hand. And it's in his right hand, the place of honor. And they belong to him. He died for them. He purchased them. And so at no time, at no time does the church slip from his grasp. At no time does the church elude his grip or operate under its own authority. Never is there a time that the church just flounders and wanders off. Now, I'm talking about the true church. Because there's a lot of churches out there that is not the true church, right? And that's why Jesus can say that the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. Because the church is in his hands. What can the gates of hell do to the church? And in fact, when you think about that description, the gates of hell, what are gates for? To keep people out. It, gates are a defense. So if it's the gates of hell, who's on the defense? Hell is, not us. We are in God's hands. We are in the right hand of Christ holding us. We have nothing to fear. The gates of hell will not prevail. In other words, we will continue to penetrate. The church will continue to penetrate, and hell cannot stop it. Although at times we lose like we're losing, it seems like we're losing it, the reality is not. The reality is that we continue to go, continue to move, continue to press on into this world. <clears throat> and so as difficult as church life at times appears, we must always remember Jesus Christ never ceases to be sovereign over the church. He's always in control. Regardless of what happens in the church, the church will always remain his body. And again, I want to emphasize, because this is important, this is referring to the genuine church made up of genuine believers. I emphasize that because there are so many churches that I come across that their church, they're, they're, they're a church by name only. When you look at what they hold to, 
they are not even remotely close to being a church. Okay, uh, I read a statistic two weeks ago, I think it was, two, three weeks ago, uh, 82% of people in America are Christians. 82%. Okay, I would say that if I had to guess at it, it'd be less than 22%. Yeah. It'd be a much less. So with, quote, 82%, that tells you that there's a lot of churches out there that claim to be true churches, and they're not. Uh, it's amazing when I visit some patients, you know, it's, I always ask them, do you believe in God? Oh, yes, I'm a Catholic, and I've always been Catholic. I, and so they, they, that's what they equate it to, that I was born a Catholic, baptized a Catholic, therefore I must be a Christian. Then when you talk to them, find out what, how they've lived, uh, all of these things, it's just like how sad. The, this, the, the devil has really blinded the eyes of a lot of people. And that's so I want to emphasize when Jesus Christ, and I say he's sovereign over the church and he holds them in his right hand, he's talking about his true church, genuine believers, not everything that carries the name church. So the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand is the first description. Note the second. He says that he is the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, lampstands is a reference to the church. You see that in chapter 1, verse 20. Okay, So he walks amongst the, uh, the, the golden lampstands. What do you think this, why do you think he uses this, this description of lampstand referring to the church? What's the purpose of that? What do you think? To hold the light. To hold the light. It tells us what our purpose is. What's the purpose of the church? We live in a dark world. We are the lampstands. That's why we're here. That's our purpose. And so the purpose of the church is to be a light in the midst of this incredible darkness. And notice it's also golden. Golden lampstands. It indicates how valuable that the, uh, the church is to Jesus Christ. You could have said bronze. Right? You could have said anything but gold. And so we see that Christ values his church. He holds them, holds them in high honor. Now, part of Christ's priestly role is to tend the lamps, right? That's what the priests used to do in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Every day they, they tend the lamp. They would trim the lamps. They would remove, remove the wick. The old oil would be removed. They would fill the lamps, relight the lamps. So there's always a tending to the lamps. Well, Jesus Christ is our high priest, and the church is the lamp. So he tends to each of his lamps. He works in the, in, in, in the church. He exhorts, he warns, he encourages, he edifies and builds up. Why? So that the church will continue to be that lampstand in that darkness. So Christ is always trimming the golden lampstands. Christ is always working in the church. He's a great high priest. That's what he does. It's important that we understand that Christ is never afar off sitting back saying, boy, I hope they do something here. Well, I hope they get this done, they get that done. No, he's at work trimming the golden lampstands, which is the church, or the churches, right? <clears throat> so he's the great high priest. And he's described, it's interesting, in chapter 1, when you look at his description, it's this, he is described as standing in the midst of the lampstands. But note that here, he is not sitting and he is not standing, but what is he doing? He's walking in the midst of the lampstands. What does that tell us about Christ and the lampstands? He's active in the church, right? He's not sitting back. He's not sitting back in a recliner just hoping things work out, as I said. 
He's walking in the midst of the lampstands. That means that here at Lakeside, Christ is walking in our midst. We may not see it, but he's walking in the midst of the lampstands. That's very encouraging and frightening as well, as we will see. So we see his continual presence. He continues to be present with us, and it's vital for us not simply to know, but to remember that the lordship of Jesus Christ over his people is not passive, it's not distant, it's not indifferent. See, too often we think of him that uh, he's, he's on his throne in heaven, he's out there, and one day we will see him. And, and, and there's, there's an element of truth that he's on his throne in heaven. But he's not just out there. He's walking here, according to this passage. He's walking in our midst. So it's important that we understand and see that he's not just passive. His lordship over the church <clears throat> is active. It's imminent. It's intimate. Right now, right here, Christ is active. Think of it that way. Because too often we think we come to church and we gather and it's just a bunch of people. But we come and we gather with Christ in our midst. And he walks amongst all of his, all the true churches. That's what he does. <clears throat> so he patrols the churches with an intense, ever-present awareness of everything that happens. He knows every thought of every child of God. He knows every deed, all the activities. He's, he's keenly aware of how we live. Because he walks in our midst. We need to let that sink in and realize that is the reality of our lives. There's no surprise when you read these letters. There's no surprise here that in each letter, we, uh, Jesus repeats these words, I know your works. We're going to get into that in here in just a few moments. But every letter has that. He knows it all. Why? Because he walks in the midst of the churches. So let me ask you, <clears throat> do you live in the knowledge that Christ is always walking with you, reading every thought, reading every motive, hearing every word, watching every action? Because that's how we should live. Because that's what he's doing. All right? I confess to you, it causes me fear. Because there are times I have to stop and say, Oh, Lord, I can't hide this from you. You know this. It should cause us to fear. There's, and don't get me wrong, it's not just fear like, oh no. There's also uh, encouragement. Because he's there. You're never alone. There's fellowship. You're never alone. And the beauty of it is because of the cross of Jesus Christ that our sins are forgiven. So we never have to worry that, oh no, God is not with me because I've sinned. No, we confess it. And what's the promise? He forgives and restores the fellowship. So there is fellowship. But please understand at the same time, he knows all of our thoughts, all of our actions, the intentions of our hearts. He holds the lampstands. He walks among the lampstands. Both emphasize the sovereignty of God. He knows it all. So being present in and among his people, Jesus guards us, which is encouraging. He protects us. He preserves the church. And he is never, ever, ever absent. There's never a time that you could look at life as a child of God, look at the church, and, and say, where was Jesus? He wasn't there. 
He is always ever present. And this is important to remember. Understand, no service is conducted at which Jesus fails to show up. He's there now. He's here. And when we go in to worship, he's going to be there. All right? No meal is served for which he's not present. All right? No sermon is preached that he doesn't know about. No Bible study is taught, which scares me to death, that he's not present listening. It scares me. No sin is committed that he's not aware of. He knows it all. There's no individual that enters the, 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 the church um, uh, auditorium that he's not aware of. No tear is shed that escapes his eye. No pain is felt that, that his heart does not feel. All of this is because he walks amongst us. No decision is made that he doesn't judge and doesn't know about. No song is sung that he doesn't hear. So be aware. Keep that in mind that when we gather and, and we're together, he is in our midst and he sees it all. He sees it all. You're never alone. One Bible teacher made this comment. He said, the imagery of walking combines the ideas of concern for, the, uh, concern for and authority over the church. Christ is present among his people and is both watching over them and watching them. So there's that element of encouragement and hope, but also there's that element of fear. Wow. He sees everything. He knows everything. Important that we understand that. And so with this in mind, I think we have to be very, very careful. Say we, I say, talk, I talk about Christians. We have to be very careful how we build our programs and prepare our messages and lessons and cast our vision and, and how we discipline the uh, uh, people in the church. We have to be careful because Christ is there. Everything we do, we can never do these things or anything else that we do uh, as if Jesus is distant or unaware and he doesn't care. Every detail matters to Jesus Christ. He's not indifferent to any of these things. And that's important for us to understand because too often I think that people in churches think that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And I say it does matter. Everything matters. Everything they matter to Jesus, and thus they should matter deeply to us. So the church in Ephesus must realize that Jesus Christ holds the church, not the other way around. And so the church must understand that Christ is sovereign over the church, not us over him. He alone is um, the sovereign ruler. So there's no room for pride. It is Christ alone who is sovereign. And that's why Jesus Christ, as I mentioned earlier, is not impressed by numbers. He's not, he's not impressed by numbers. Some of the most God-honoring churches that give him the greatest glory are small churches, 40, 50 people. I know some pastors that have worked in churches, been faithful to the church, 40, 50 people all their lives, 40 years in one church. And I look at that and I say, man, and people have grown I say, see, that honors God. God is not impressed with a church of 10,000, 5,000, 3,000, 20,000. God owns it all. God is sovereign overall. He's looking at the heart. He's in the midst. And too often, I know when I was in seminary, the big thing was numbers. Growing your church. If your church is not growing after five years, then get out. Wow. Think about that. As if we control the numbers. Personally, 
I don't like mega churches. I know some people do. I don't. It's too big and too much stuff get, gets lost. I like the closer, intimate t- uh, church. But again, God is not in, impressed with numbers. God could add to a church 10,000 people if he wanted. Okay, that's not, that's not the goal. Now, let's move on here. <clears throat> I want to spend all the time here, but I want to move to verse 2. And before directly addressing the issue with the church, we're going to see that in verse 4 and 5, he uh, is going to encourage them because of the good things that they have done. And that's what I want us to see and learn from from this. And verses 2 and 3, what we learn from them and what we need to learn for ourselves is that we must refuse to put up with evil. And I say that because I, I remember when I was teaching uh, Bible college and I would teach people from different churches and we, we would talk about church discipline and how do we deal with this. And many of them say that's difficult because we've got to show love. And that's the big thing. That if somebody messes up, well, you've got to show love. And so it's like sweeping it under the rug, that's okay. That's not love. We have to refuse to put up with evil. And if that means we have to remove them from the church, then we do that. And the big question is, well, how's that love? That's greater love than if you let them live in their sin. So that's why I say we have to refuse to um, put up with evil. And this was true of the Ephesians. As you read through this uh, letter, um, they refused to put up with it, and Jesus commends them for it. But I want you to see again. There in verse 2, the very first, uh, very first words. And I want to spend a little bit of time dealing with that as well because he says that in the, all seven letters, so I don't have to repeat it. But he says, I know your deeds. You should have those words etched right at the forefront of your mind. I know your deeds. We have to live in the reality that Jesus Christ knows everything we do. I know I mentioned it before, but I have to emphasize it again. We have to live in that reality. Jesus has complete knowledge of how the church at Ephesus lived. See, here's the problem. The problem with uh, people in the world and also um, people in the church. It's what I call the illusion of secrecy. Sorry, my wife tells me I've got to learn how to spell or how to write. The illusion of secrecy. We see it in the world, right? Psalm, t- uh, Psalm uh, 10, verse 11. David speaks of this. He's, he's talking of the wicked. And here's what David says concerning the wicked. He says, he says to himself, the wicked man says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. In other words, this person that David is talking about believes that his thoughts are known only to himself. So he can covet. He could have... Poor thoughts, evil thoughts, wicked thoughts, thinking that nobody else knows it but himself. That's the illusion of secrecy. So he can lust and he can fantasize. He revels in the passions of his heart. He criticizes and he hates. Because nobody knows. And God himself does not know. And so convinced of this, he then acts on them. And that's why we have so much wickedness in this world. But we have to understand, this is not unique only to the unbelieving wicked. This is also true of many Christians. Many Christians think that they act and live as if God cannot see what's going on. 
which is frightening. It's for all people. He states clearly, I know your deeds. That statement should shock us. That statement should sort of shake us up a little bit. Because it's real. It's true. Jesus knows your deeds and my deeds. Every one of them. What we do and what we don't do. And again, the fact that he makes this statement at the beginning of each of his letters makes it emphatic. Why does he state it? Because he's trying to convince them that I know your deeds. We live too often as if Christ does not know. And he does know. He knows everything of what we do and what we don't do. And he knows our thoughts, as I said, and our intentions. Think of this. Nothing in our lives, nothing is hidden from him. He knows it all. Everything. When we drive, go to church, go to work, come home, how we deal with people at work, so forth. <clears throat> and I believe that one of the biggest problems in, in, with Christians today is that many will claim this, that Jesus knows everything, but they live as if he really doesn't know everything. Like they can get away with it. And I think that's very dangerous. In fact, at this very moment, he knows exactly what you are thinking. Right now, whatever that may be, he knows it. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're going to do as soon as you leave this place. He knows it all. In fact, we read in Scripture, He knows what you're, going to do, what you're going to say even before you say it. Think about that. He knows it all. And so this, this thought alone should cause each person to take heed to every detail of life. Because He knows it. Everything we say and do. Scripture is filled with passage after passage after passage that God knows it all. I just want to share a few with you just, <clears throat> just to let you see. First Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. David says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. He knows every intent of the thoughts. Psalm 69, verse 5. O God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. He knows it all. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching evil and the good. Proverbs 15, 11. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of people. He knows the hearts. Jeremiah 20, verse 12. Yet, O Lord of hosts, who test the righteous, who see the mind and the hearts. Ezekiel 11:5. Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, so you think, house of Israel, for I know your thoughts. In other words, he's telling Israel, I know your thoughts even before you do it. All of your evil and all of your wickedness. Acts 1:24. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all people, show which one of these two you have chosen. Matthew 6, 8, teaching us to pray. He says, don't be like the world, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. Think about that. He knows it all. Hebrews 14, uh, 4, 13. And there's no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And on and on and on it goes. I could give you another 20 uh, uh, passages that talk about how God knows everything about us. He knows our deeds. 
And please understand this. <clears throat> Sometimes when we say that God knows everything, we compare God's knowledge to our knowledge. In other words, we think that God knows things the way we know things, right? And we can't do that. We learn things by study and observation, right? We have to see things, think about it, and then we know, we know it. God simply knows. God never studies to learn something. Okay? We do. He does not. God doesn't have to study your life to know you. It's not like he has to look back at your life and say, now I understand him. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. With God, the act of knowing is complete and instantaneous. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, wrote this about God's knowledge. I love this. He says, If God should wish to tell us the number of grains of sand on the seashore or the number of stars in the sky, he would not have to count them all quickly like some kind of giant computer, nor would he have to call the number to mind because it was something he, um, that he had not thought about for a time. Rather, he knows all things at once. All of these facts and all other things that he knows are fully present in his consciousness. See, there are things we know that at times we don't think about, but not with God. Everything, I mean everything, he knows all the time, every moment of every day. There's never a time that God is not knowing something that's going on. We have to think about things. Right? I could give you a problem and you have to say, okay, let me figure it out. God already knows that. He's had that in his mind from eternity. There's never time that there's a lapse in God's mind. So when he says he knows our deeds, it's always there. Think about that. It's always there. That's frightening. He knows it. And so God's knowledge of us and all things is independent. He doesn't uh, get it from anyone. He doesn't have to study it. He knows it all. Isaiah 40, verse 13 through 14 says, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Who? No one. He has it all. He's always had it from all eternity. So God's knowledge of you and me is exhaustive, and it is infallible. He knows everything about us, and He knows it perfectly. And He holds no false beliefs about us. He makes no errors of judgment. He knows us. Okay, and he there's no secret of the human heart that He doesn't know about. That's why this is a fallacy. The illusion of secrecy is a fallacy. God does know. Psalm 139. Verses 1 through 4, we read, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. I mean, you can't get more comprehensive than that. And so what he is saying is that God's knowledge extends to every posture, Every gesture, every exercise, every pursuit, every state that you're in, every condition possible, He knows it all. Every emotion, every feeling, every idea, every thought, every conception, every resolve, every aim, every doubt, every motive, every perplexity, every anxious moment, God knows it. And He knows it up close because He's present. 
He knows it more deeply than we do. And he knows it every moment, all at once. He knows it all. And so God knows all my ways, which is to say that every step, every move, every journey is under his gaze. So there's some security in that that we don't have to fear. We don't have to be anxious because everything is before him. But at the same time, there's that element of fear that my God sees everything I do. He sees everything I think. All of my intentions, he knows it all. So there's that fear that I don't want to offend my God this way. There's some things that have come across my mind that I have to shake my head and say, God, have mercy on me because I know you. Th- uh, things I could never share. <clears throat> yeah, he knows it all. He knows it all. <clears throat> so what possible hope of concealment is there if God knows all of these things? That's why this is an illusion. You know how I've heard it from people. How can God know this? How can God know what I'm going through? How can God relate to me? And yet he does. When you're in pain, he feels that pain. He knows the pain, right? He also knows the joys and the encouragements. So God is never absent from our lives. We need to meditate more often on this stunning knowledge that God knows everything. It's all in my heart. I think we need to wake up realizing my God is with me right now. He knows everything, everything in my mind, everything I'm thinking of, all of my thoughts, So hear in your minds constantly the words of Jesus, I know your deeds. So live in the reality that God knows it all. Etch it. Put it on a a, a 3x5 card and put it right there on the windshield when you're driving. That's a hard one for me in traffic. Because when I'm driving, I'm constantly saying, God, I am so sorry. Forgive me. Forgive me. It's hard. And I pray for patience. Okay. So... First thing we see is that we have to live in the reality that Jesus knows our every deed. Also note, we have to work hard at living right. He not only knows all that's going on, and that should be an encouragement, but there are times when we get discouraged, right? There are times we get discouraged and even get to the point where we just want to give up. In our minds we say, what's the use? What's the use? Nobody cares. Nobody knows anyway. What's the big deal? And we begin to question whether God even knows it or not. But this is an, there's an important thing that we need to remember and consider. Listen to what um, the writer of the Hebrews says, chapter 6, verse 10. And he reminds his readers, he says, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So there are times we get discouraged in church say, what's the use? Why should I even do this? Nobody knows. Nobody sees it. Who cares? And the writer of Hebrews says, God takes note. Even if nobody else sees it, God takes note of it. He sees it. He will never allow it to go by. And so for God, it is a matter of divine justice that he remembers your work and your loving ministering to the saints. For God, it's inconceivable that he would ignore it. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us here. So all the works we do, if done in God's grace for his glory, will never escape the attention of God. Nobody else may see it. Your name may never be mentioned. But God takes note. God takes note. 
God is at work in us both to will and to do, right? Therefore, He takes note of it all. And so Jesus commends the Ephesian church for their works. Notice the three words that He uses. He uses the words deeds, toil, and perseverance. The deeds to which He refers to here is more than just good deeds. That's included, but it's more than that. It refers to the spiritual walk of the believer. How they walk, how they live. It is their overall manner of life. And that those deeds are described by, those, by the two words that follow, toil and perseverance. Their deeds are a toil. Toil is the word here for hard labor. Not just going through the motions, but you work hard. It's working, literally, it means working to the point of exhaustion. Right? It is the spending of yourself in labor. And so we see here that the church was very active and very conscientious. They worked hard at ministering to others. And you look at the word, and, and that was their that was the active side of their deeds, that they're working hard. But we see the passive side of their deeds in perseverance. And this is important for us because it, um, the way this world is going, we are going to need this more and more. Right? They lived in a city where paganism and immorality ran rampant. And they were bearing tremendous persecution because of hostility. And so despite the temptations that assaulted them constantly, they stood unswerving. They were firm. And as I said before, our culture today is not that much different from the Ephesian culture. right? <coughs> and so they, these Ephesians Christians did not hide from the spiritual war that was raging. They held to the gospel. And so living the Christian life, especially the way the world is going, is only going to get worse. The question is, is as we strive and as we work hard, will we persevere? They did, and Jesus Christ commended them. I agree with the pastor who stated this. He said, to every faithful servant of Christ who has labored in virtual obscurity in the nursery, I say, Jesus knows your works. To every Sunday school teacher who spends hours each week in preparation to only a handful show up early enough for class, I say, Jesus knows your works. To every diligent believer who stuffs the bulletin or inserts uh, in, in the bulletin or cleans up in the kitchen after potluck dinner or picks up trash following the Sunday service, I say, Jesus knows your works. And we could list a whole slew of things. Jesus knows what you do, even if nobody else does. Work hard because he knows. Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words that you've given us to this church at Ephesus. And Lord, I pray for each of us that you would do a work in us to remember and to meditate and to think on the fact that you're ever-present with us and you know our deeds. So God, make us a people who work hard, who persevere, regardless of what people may think or say, even if, we don't, even if people don't know what we do. God, grant that we would work hard because we work it for you. Prepare our hearts as we go to the service. As we gather together with other brothers and sisters, prepare our hearts for worship and praise. And Lord, help us to grow in the knowledge of Christ. And more than, that, more than ever, may we be transformed and become more conformed to the image of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.